Bayonet Point, WTBN, Pinellas Park. Portions of this hour have been pre-recorded for broadcast at this time. Up next is Verse by Verse, sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries. I want you to know that the truth of Christ's sinlessness is is not simply an abstract theological truth that we just throw around. It is absolutely a critical aspect to being reconciled to God because it is Christ's sinlessness that qualifies him to pay for your sins. If Jesus had any sin of his own, even one, then he would have to die for his own sin. He would never be fit to pay for your sins because he'd have to pay for his own. Wayne Grudem, in his very readable Systematic Theology, wrote a great deal about the sinlessness of Jesus and its importance for our redemption. Again and again, the New Testament stressed Jesus' sinlessness, and that sinless state is one of the essentials of our salvation. Otherwise, Jesus' death would have only been for his own sins, not for ours. Welcome to Verse by Verse with Pastor Steve Kreloff of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. We've been spending some time lately in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, learning about an important assignment that God has given to everyone who has trusted Christ as Savior. The Apostle Paul called it the ministry of reconciliation. The whole reason Jesus died on the cross is so that we could be reconciled to God through faith in that sin debt payment. God leaves us here in this sin-cursed world for a while after he saves us so that we can be his ambassadors and point others to Christ. So, imagine someone running up to you and breathlessly telling you, I have great news. The runner is very excited about the news, but never is able to explain it in a way that makes sense to you. Do you see my point? To share the gospel effectively, we need to know how to communicate it accurately. Here's Pastor Steve now to help us do that. This morning, we begin not from 2 Corinthians, though we'll move there, but to one of the most shocking statements in the Bible, and it's found in 1 Corinthians. You don't need to turn there, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul is speaking about the preaching of the cross, the message of the cross, and you know what he calls it? He calls it the foolishness of God. Now that is a shocking statement. In fact, his exact words were these. Speaking of the cross, he said, because the foolishness of God is wiser Than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Now, Paul, in essence, is calling the message of the cross, the message of Christianity, foolish and weak. And yet, how strange it is that the Apostle Paul dedicated his whole life as a Christian to preaching this message. Why would he call it foolish and weak? Well, in context, Paul did not mean that the message of the cross is actually foolish or actually weak at all. But that to man's proud and natural mind, it only appears to be foolish. It only appears to be weak and anemic. You see, to those who reject the gospel, the message of salvation through Christ's death on the cross, it, it actually seems like nonsense. It, it, it seems silly. In fact, the Greek word that's translated foolish actually gives us our English word moron. That is where we get it, moron. And in essence, what Paul is saying is that those who consider themselves to be so wise and, and so scholarly and too intellectually astute to believe that the simple message of the cross can save their souls for eternity, they consider the message of the cross to be moronic, to be nonsense. 
And then Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. You might want to turn there. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he actually goes on to mention two specific groups of of people who, at least in the first century, held to this perspective. They looked at the cross and thought it was nonsense, moronic. He tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, he says, For indeed, Jews ask for a sign, and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to Jews, a stumbling block, and to Gentiles, foolishness. Now, first of all, Paul says the Jewish people, and he means the Jewish people of Christ's day. The Jewish people of Christ's day stumbled over the message of the cross. Uh, in case you're, you're wondering, and people do wonder this, why when the Jewish people could see and hear Jesus, why did they stumble over him? Why didn't they embrace him as Messiah? At least this gives us um, one answer, one aspect of the answer. The Jewish people of Christ's day stumbled over a humble, crucified Messiah because that wasn't the Messiah they were looking for. They were looking for a Messiah who would be a political conqueror, a a king, someone who would come not just with miracles to heal people, but miraculous signs of power and strength. That's what they were looking for. But they looked at the cross and all they saw was weakness and defeat. And they remembered a verse from Deuteronomy that says, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And that's what a cross is, a tree. And so they said this couldn't possibly be our Messiah. On the other hand, the Gentiles he mentions... They also thought that the message of the cross was a moronic message. And by Gentiles, Paul means very clearly in context, not just Gentiles in general, but philosophically oriented Greek Gentiles. They were, uh, they were those who exalted human wisdom, those who were into Greek philosophy, who tried to figure out life and the meaning of life through their own wisdom and exalted knowledge. He said that these people also considered the message of the cross foolish. Why? Because they so exalted human wisdom and reason that from their perspective, they could not fathom and understand how the story of a Jewish man being nailed to a cross in a remote uh, area of the world uh, how how that could possibly have any bearing on their eternal destiny. And so it seemed to, to them that the message of the cross was absolutely irrelevant, naive, simplistic, foolish, nonsense. That's how Paul said the world of his day looked at the cross. And it's it's no different today. That's exactly how people look at it today. But regardless of how, how scorned the message of the cross was, the apostle Paul continued to preach it. He continued to preach it. He goes on to say in verses 24 and 25, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, he's talking about the elect, those who have come to Christ. He says the, the, the power of God and the wisdom of God. He says Christ is the power of God. Christ is the wisdom of God because the foolishness of God, meaning the cross, is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Paul is somewhat being sarcastic here. He's saying that those that message of the cross, which appears so foolish to people, is actually the greatest demonstration of God's wisdom. And that message of the cross, which appears so weak, and, and, and people look at it and say it's a defeat, that, from God's perspective, is actually not only his wisdom, but his power. In fact, the cross really is, the message of Jesus Christ being crucified is actually the greatest demonstration of God's power and wisdom. And we want to know why. And that's what we're going to study this morning. This morning, we're going to discover why the message of the cross is so powerful and so wise 
and, and so reasonable and logical that it can affect an individual's eternal destiny. And to understand that, we need to turn from 1 Corinthians to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Now, we've been studying 2 Corinthians for some time, and so this is not really new uh, to us, except we, we stopped last week just before the, the end of chapter 5. And I purposely left this alone because this is a message in and of itself. And let me read it to you. Verse 21. Listen very closely. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. I want you to know that this one verse is considered by many, and and I would agree with them, to be the most significant verse in the entire Bible. This one verse. In fact, one theologian uh, called it the most profound sentence in the whole of Scripture. Why? Because in one concise statement, Paul has summed up the gospel. This is the gospel. This is the heart of the gospel. This is the basis for our salvation. This is the cornerstone of our faith. This is the foundation, the groundwork, the reason for Christianity. This is it. This is the logic behind God forgiving us of our sins. This is it. This sums it up. This is Christianity in a nutshell. If you don't have this verse and this truth in Scripture, you do not have the gospel. This is it. It is the crowning statement to all that Paul has written about the doctrine of reconciliation as he closes chapter 5. Now, you'll recall in our study of 2 Corinthians 5, Paul is defending himself in chapter 5. He's defending himself from false teachers whom he later will call false apostles who had infiltrated the Corinthian church, and they had accused Paul of many things. One of the things they accused Paul of is being mentally unbalanced, and we've seen this for several weeks, but let me draw your attention to it again. In verse 13, they said this, for if we, Paul said, for if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. And if we are of sound mind, it is for you. The, the word there and the thought there beside ourselves means mentally unbalanced. Paul said, this is what you accuse me of. You accuse me of going over the edge, of being a religious fanatic, of being a religious nut. He said, I want you to know that the things that I do, and he's talking here about his total abandonment to the cause of Christ, the things that I do that may look nutty to you, I do it for God. I do it for God. And he goes on to explain in verse 14, he said, I want you to understand that it is the love of Jesus Christ that constrains me or controls me or motivates me. The thought is to, it puts pressure on me to live a life like this. Now, he's not talking about his love for Christ, though it is true. Paul and every believer loves Christ. He is talking in context about Christ's love for him. Christ's love for him. And and how did Paul know that Jesus Christ loved him? He goes on to say, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. He said that when I understood the cross and the meaning of the cross, I understood how much Jesus Christ loved me. He loved me enough to die for me. He died for me. And he, he said it changed my life. He goes on in verse 15 said he, saying he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Paul said not only did the, the love of Christ change me, but it changed me into a new man who no longer lived for myself. If you want to understand my life, if you want to define my life, I live this way. I serve others for the glory of Christ because this is what he's called me to do. I no longer live for my own interests. I live for his interests. And one of the changes that took place in Paul's life is that he began to see people differently. 
You, you can't serve the Lord in a vacuum. When we serve the Lord, we serve the Lord by serving people. And so he says in verse 16, therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh, meaning that he had a new perspective on people. Now he understood people. He looked at people differently. And what he saw in people were sinners who had spiritual needs. Paul said, I really don't care about their occupation. I really don't care about their financial status. I really don't care about their clout in the community. The only thing that matters to me is that I now see them from God's perspective. Sinners who have needs, either they're lost sinners who need salvation or they're saved sinners who need to grow. That's how Paul saw people. And so he served them. And he's really building a case here. What he's saying is that this understanding of Christ's death combined with man's spiritual need now defined the way Paul lived. He was a man on a mission. And what was that mission? That mission, That mission. he went on to say from verses 18 to verse 20 is the ministry of reconciliation that God has given him. He said in verse 18, Now, all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Reconciliation simply means that that God has now changed your status from being one who has been his enemy, one who has been hostile towards him to one who now is at peace with him. Just when you have a conflict with somebody and you're reconciled to them and now you're no longer warring against them. So God, through the cross, has reconciled us to himself. And Paul said, the ministry that I preach, the message that I preach is called the ministry of reconciliation. It's basically what we call the gospel, the plan of salvation. It's 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 all of that. Paul said, that is what my life is about, telling others about Jesus Christ, how they as rebellious sinners can now be brought back into a restored relationship with him. And so from verses 18 through 20, Paul explains the various elements of the message of reconciliation. This is the gospel we share with other people. And we looked at two of those elements last week. Number one is its content and number two is its call. In verse 19, he tells us only in general terms, and I want you to understand that, just broad general terms, he tells us the content of the message of reconciliation. He sums it up in verse 19 by saying this, namely, here's here's it. That's I told you it's that great King James expression, to wit. That's what this is. Namely, he's, he's clarifying it. If He's giving an explanation. To wit or namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has given to us or has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Paul is teaching us that in the death of Jesus Christ, God provided a way for man to be reconciled to himself by not counting their sins against them. But Christ's death alone could never reconcile anybody. Christ's death in and of itself could never reconcile anyone. It merely, as I've said for many weeks, it merely provided the means to be reconciled. People are not saved just because Jesus died. They're not saved. They are made savable. The the cross of Christ only makes it possible for people to be saved, but the death of Christ doesn't actually save anybody. And that's why Paul stated in verse 20, the call of reconciliation. He says in verse 20, therefore, we are ambassadors. I mean, based on this truth that Christ uh, has provided a way for reconciliation, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we, be, we, we beseech you or we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. In other words, what he's saying is that it is one thing to know that Jesus died 
and even died for you. But it is another thing to actually appropriate his death. You must call upon the Lord to save you. You must in repentance and faith come to him. And that's why it says he's an ambassador. He represents the king of kings and he has one message from the king. And the message is this, be reconciled to God. That's the message. Paul said, Jesus, in essence, he's saying Jesus is in heaven. I'm his ambassador. Every Christian is his ambassador. And we have one message to give to the world. And that is we plead with you on behalf of Christ. We beg you, we urge you, we beseech you, be reconciled to Christ. Come in repentance, turning from your sin and and trusting Christ alone for your salvation. Be reconciled to him. So there is the content, the general content of the gospel. But then we call people to embrace Christ. We tell people how to be saved, and then we call them to trust Christ for salvation. Now, this is, this is where we left off last week, but Paul has one more incredibly important thing to tell us about the message of reconciliation. Without this, without verse 21, as I told you, there is no gospel. He closes the chapter, verse 21, by telling us the cornerstone or the basis or the reason for reconciliation. What I'm saying is up to this point, Paul has just told us the ministry and the message of reconciliation in broad general terms. He really hasn't explained it. He has not told us how reconciliation works, but now he's going to. And that's what verse 21 is about. It's content, it's call, now it's cornerstone, it's basis, it's foundation. Let's read verse 21 again. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Having just stated that he was an ambassador for Christ, Paul appealed to people to be reconciled to God. Now the apostle explains what that appeal is based on. It's one thing to appeal to people, but based on what? You got to explain things to them. In other words, he tells us how reconciliation is even possible, what God has done to make it possible. In the Greek language, verse 21 is merely 15 Greek words. That's all it is. But these 15 Greek words sum up the gospel message by focusing on the substitutionary work of Christ on the cross, how he died in our place. You cannot, cannot become a Christian without understanding verse 21. This is the heart of the heart of the heart of the gospel. This is its core. So with these 15 words, Paul gives us, and if you're taking notes, this is where we're going this morning, two foundational truths about reconciliation to God. If you understand this and come to Christ in repentance and faith, you will be saved for all of eternity. What the the ancient Greeks thought is nonsense, what the Jewish people of Christ's day stumbled over, you're going to hear this morning. This is what God says is foolishness and his weakness, which is really his wisdom and his strength. Number one, the first foundational truth about reconciliation to God is this. Though Christ was sinless, God treated him as a sinner. Talking about the cross. Though Christ was sinless, God treated him as a sinner. In verse 21, Paul begins, interestingly enough, not by telling us first about the death of Christ. He first tells us, a critically important truth about the life of Christ, which has direct bearing upon his death and upon our reconciliation to God. He begins by saying, he, meaning God the Father, made him, meaning Jesus Christ, he made him who knew no sin. Now let's stop there and think about this. By this phrase, Paul simply means that Jesus Christ was not a sinner. 
not a sinner at all. He knew no sin in the sense that though he certainly knew about sin, yet he never had any experiential knowledge of sin. He never experienced it. He could forgive sin. He could rebuke sin. He could expose sin, but he was incapable of sinning. This is what theologians call the impeccability of Christ. He, he did not have the capacity to sin. Though fully man, he was a man without sin. He did not have a sin nature. As a man, we might add, he experienced the effects of, of sin. He, he could get tired and did get tired like any one of us. He had a need to sleep like every one of us. He, uh, he experienced hunger and thirst like every one of us. Those are all effects of the fall, but he never, ever sinned. Never committed a sin. He was sinless in internal motives. He never had an improper motive in his life. Never had an improper thought of heart, as well as external behaviors and actions. He, he never did this. He never had anything that was sinful. Let me put it this way. I just, I just thought about this recently. That, uh, he is the only one who never needed to be spanked as a child by his mother. And we think about the infant, the baby Jesus coming into the world. Never needed to be spanked. Let me put it this way. If Mary or Joseph ever spanked Jesus because of what they thought he did wrong, they were wrong. They sinned by doing that. Perfect, perfect child, perfect adult. Now I want you to know that the truth of Christ's sinlessness is, is not simply an abstract theological truth that we just throw around. It is absolutely a critical aspect to being reconciled to God because it is Christ's sinlessness that qualifies him to pay for your sins. If Jesus had any sin of his own, even one, then he would have to die for his own sin. He would never be fit to pay for your sins because he'd have to pay for his own. The wages of sin is what? It's death. Not simply physical death, though that's part of it, but spiritual death and eternal death, which the Bible calls hell. Jesus Christ was sinless. Sinless. He never had to pay for his own sin because he never sinned. And, and, and let's put it in, in a biblical perspective. Every animal sacrifice under the old covenant system had to be free from any physical blemish. You should know that. In, in the Old Testament era, for a Jewish person to come to the temple and bring, let's say, a lamb with a broken, a broken leg, that was unacceptable. That was, that was not what God said. It had to be free. All sacrifices had to be free from physical defects, physical blemishes. So, under the new covenant today, the Lord Jesus Christ, as our sacrifice, also had to be free from any moral blemish. And he was. In fact, Peter refers to him in his first letter as a lamb unblemished and spotless. This is why the New Testament writers, and you may have not picked up on this or thought much about it, this is why the New Testament writers go to great length to emphasize that Jesus Christ was free from any sin. I understand that there are people who actually claim that Jesus must have sinned or he wouldn't be human. After all, everyone sins, right? But if that logic is true, then Adam and Eve were not human until after they disobeyed God and ate that forbidden fruit. In fact, one could say that the opposite is true. If anything, we are less human because of our sin. God did not design us to sin. He designed us to be holy. Adam and Eve, before the fall, and Jesus were all examples of what humans are supposed to be. You've been listening to Verse by Verse. 
a Bible class of the year taught by Pastor Steve Kreloff of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. We're glad you're here today for our class. If you've missed any of the previous broadcasts in this series about the ministry of redemption God has given us, stop by our website, versebyverseradio.org. Click on the link to the message archives and download or stream as many as you'd like. There's also information on giving available on the website. We are listener-supported, and we appreciate the folks whose generosity helps finance these daily broadcasts. Once again, it's versebyverseradio.org. This is Jerry Peterson. Have you ever been accused of something you didn't do? Well, I'd be surprised if you haven't. How did you react? I remember getting the paddle once in school, and another time it was even worse. I was furious, both with the teachers and with those two kids whose punishment I took. Jesus took our blame and our punishment on the cross, and it was infinitely worse than anything any of us has ever experienced. And yet he did that without any anger. God blamed his own son for every wrong thing you and I ever did, and Jesus took it with complete grace. I hope you can join us for the next verse by verse.